0: Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.
1: This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott.
2: You used to Dream yourself Away each night To places that you've never been That's Francine Wheeler. She's
1: singing a song called Rainbow Sleeves, which was written by Tom Waits. This song has helped her during some really hard times.
0: I've lived with that song since I was about 15 years old. And after Ben's death... I was looking for music to sing, to help me feel not just closer to him, but help me to handle my thoughts and feelings. Francine's son Ben was
1: killed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newtown, Connecticut on December 14th, 2012. Ten years ago, the savage murder of 20 children and six adults at the school, one of the deadliest school shootings ever, left many of us in complete shock and disbelief. For Francine, it was the moment that changed her life forever. For the first two days after Ben's murder, Francine couldn't sleep. She couldn't eat. She couldn't look at anything that had belonged to Ben. But
0: on the third day, she made her way to her piano. I looked at my piano and I thought, oh my God, I've got to pray to you. I've got to pray. So music to me is a prayer. And then I started singing and I started singing Beatles songs because Ben loved Beatles.
1: Since playing and singing those first notes, Francine has clawed her way back to living, to new beginnings, to finding meaning and even joy. Her grief is present always. But it's
0: different. I cry. But I also, I think in that moment, in that grief, like, how am I going to get through this? But I always know somewhere in the back of my head that I will because I have a million times. But it does just flow. It's kind of, (laughs) some people say this is a weird description, but it's kind of like a contraction when you're in labor. It's like, it happens, you think it's never going to be over. And then it ends. And then when you see it coming again, and you're like... Now, the only difference is, I think my contractions or my emotional contractions, they happen fewer times. They don't happen more.
1: Grief often seems insurmountable at first, like a dark hole that will swallow us up, and things will never, ever get better. But somehow, we tend to find a way back. On today's episode, Living with Grief, what helps us cope, manage, and overcome the pain. Also, what the pandemic has taught us about grieving after unexpected, sudden losses, and the importance of saying goodbye. Let's stick with the story of Francine Wheeler. Reporter Claire Boyle has a personal connection with Francine and brings us this story of grief and healing.
3: Francine Wheeler was my piano teacher growing up, and we've been family friends since I was eight. We're sitting in her basement studio, where my lessons took place.
0: I'm looking next to you. That is, uh, it's the our door to our studio, and each one of my kids has a... Uh, measurement for their height. And the last measurement we did for Ben was on November 11th, 2012. And then above it, in very faint letters up higher,
3: Nate wrote, would be here if he were still alive. Nate is Ben's older brother. He was in fourth grade at Sandy Hook when the shooting happened. Francine says Nate wrote that about a year after Ben died. And you know,
0: that's really sad, but it also kind of Makes you think about all oh, that was lost. I mean he was he was six years, three months and two days when he died.
3: Here are some things Francine wants you to know about Ben. We had a nickname for
0: him which was Crash, Hop Along, Hurt Himself, Jawbreaker, Shiner, Split Lip, Gash Eye, Nosebuster, Face Plant Wheeler. And we said that because the kid would find <laughs> he would find any way he could get into trouble. Bash his head run into a wall, he was funny about it. He'd be like, oh, well, (laughs) oh, well, I got this thing, mommy. At the same time, he was an incredibly empathetic kid. So he really, he noticed other people's sadness and would want to help them and want to be with them. And, you know, he was very loving at a young age like that. Most kids are, but we forget about it because then our kids get older. <laughs> but he, because he didn't have that opportunity to get older, that's what I remember of him, is the loving innocence of a six-year-old.
3: On the wall of Francine's studio, there's a framed piece of paper divided into columns, each full of bright stickers. It's Ben's sticker chart, where Francine kept track of his goals. This one is from the week Ben died. Here are some of the goals that we had.
0: We had um,
3: great table manners,
0: Uh, Listening to words, using a tissue, (laughs) (laughs) might seem easy, but it was not for Ben. Uh, Sitting fully in a chair, which he had five stars for, so he had really accomplished that. Another one that he had accomplished was kindness to family and friends. Gentle body, no licking, no biting, no hitting.
3: Ben was getting better at the no biting goal but he did chomp on his dad's arm about a week before he died.
0: And at the time, David, my husband, was so upset that he bit his arm, but he has this little scar, and he loves that scar now. Because oftentimes when when you lose somebody that young, you sort of go, was he really here? Did I really have him for six years? So we both have those things. My husband and I both have things that help remind us that he was here. And for him, it's that little bite mark on his arm, which might seem so odd, but it's kind of
3: a a weird gift. Memories of Ben are a source of joy now. But at first, Francine couldn't even allow herself to think about Ben. The weekend
0: after, he died on a Friday and Saturday, I was putting all of his things in boxes in the attic because I couldn't manage to look at them. It was very difficult to even touch his backpack or any of his
3: clothes. In the weeks after the shooting, I remember driving to the Wheeler's house with my mom almost every day. We'd pass under a bridge covered with posters, candles, flowers, and heaps of stuffed animals that grew soggy in the winter weather.
0: Just our family alone received 5,500 stuffed animals. So I had this friend, and I said to her, Can you do me a favor? And help me deliver these 5,500 stuffed animals and I am not even to fit in our house. So she had to get two trucks and she got them all delivered to hospitals and things in
3: the state. But then things slowed down and Francine felt the enormity of her loss. About two weeks after Ben's death, Francine was in the kitchen with her husband, David. And I turned to David and I said,
0: um, I'm not going to make it. And he said, you know, that's not fair, Fran. You can't. You can't leave this. What about Nate? What about me? You know. And I said, well, I just I can't see myself living through this. And I had this weird experience that I don't know if it was my own brain or if it really was Ben's voice, but I heard Ben telling me that he wanted me to live. And when he told me that, I made a deal with him. And I said,
3: if you help me figure out how to survive, I'll do it. But even though Francine had decided to live, she says she kept trying to distract herself from her trauma and grief. First, she threw herself into advocacy.
0: And I went to Congress and the Senate and I did all of these things and I got the energy by pushing it down, by pushing the grief aside so that I could get through it to fight.
3: Francine was even invited to give President Obama's weekly address in place of the president. But when the Senate voted on new gun control laws in April 2013, every single measure failed. Even expanded background checks. By that summer, Francine knew she couldn't keep speaking so publicly about her grief.
0: And I turned to my husband and I said, you know, I have to find a way to reinvent myself. And I know a way that I could do this, but obviously I need your help, and obviously I need your okay. And he said, what was
3: that? And I said, if we have another baby. And he was like,
0: what? We're so old, you're
3: crazy. Francine was 46 at the time, David was 55. And I said, no, but see, this is something that is going to
0: help me live and not die. And so when I made that decision, I started to grieve.
3: Back when the murder first happened, Francine struggled to do daily activities, like brushing her teeth and taking a shower. To get through each day, she had friends in the house as much as possible, visiting during the day and sleeping on the couch over the weekend. People to talk to in case trauma froze or overwhelmed her. So for Francine, starting to grieve meant learning to be alone in an empty, quiet house. She also started working out to address the ways grief had taken root in her body.
0: I started to run. I started to strength train. I started to work out with other people, go to the gym. And it was like a side of me that I never thought could exist because I was not a gym girl.
3: Francine gave birth to a baby boy, Matthew, in 2014. Looking down at him for the first time, she thought of the moment two weeks after Ben died. That moment in the kitchen when she felt like she had heard Ben telling her to live. The miracle is and i say it's a miracle
0: i had matthew at a very old age and and that is such a gift that i feel kind of that ben gave me in a way you know that's how i look at it his name matthew means gift from god and i kind of feel that matthew is
3: a gift from god and from wherever we go this december 14th will mark 10 years since ben's murder
0: he was six he would be 16 10 years of life going on without him it's a substantial significant number
3: francine doesn't know quite what to expect this year on the day of the tragedy i'm kind of bracing myself for that
0: and knowing that you know what i will do all the things that i do to help myself i will have friends around me we're going to go away for a couple of days and it will be probably a choice to be very much in christmas mode and not make it about Ben and not ignore Ben, but make it about Matthew's experience and finding that joy because we always do. So I might as well have joy while I'm dealing with this terrible grief.
3: In fact, Francine says one of the biggest misconceptions about losing Ben is that there isn't joy in the midst of her grief.
0: People who have not experienced this kind of loss, they think we lay around in bed all day crying And that's just not how grief works. You laugh in grief, you celebrate in grief,
3: you cry in grief, you scream in grief, but you also celebrate life. Still, there are things that send Francine back to what she calls the soul of her grief. Sometimes
0: it's obvious things like his birthday or the day of the tragedy, or the first day of school when I hear the school buses going by. And sometimes it's the smell of a season or seeing a friend of his who I haven't seen in 10 years and they're 16. And you're like, oh, you don't look the same that when you were friends with Ben.
3: She's also careful to distinguish between her grief and her trauma. And her trauma responses happen automatically. Like when she saw the news about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas last spring.
0: I didn't even realize I was in bed for a couple of days. And I was, because that's the kind of debilitating
3: trauma that can come back in a moment's notice. But Francine knows how to care for herself better than she did in the days after Ben's murder. And that happens automatically too. I had to be in bed. I had to ask for help with Matt. David needed the help too. You know, I mean, these are the things that we will forever do. Francine also moves through her grief by keeping a daily gratitude journal. She's grateful for the health of her family that David works from home to help take care of Matthew and for her morning cup of coffee.
0: Because coffee for me is kind of my morning ritual of, I got the gift of this day. Even if it's a crappy day, I got the gift of this day. Because I say to people all the time, you don't know if you have tomorrow. And I know it's a cliche, but people don't really think about that cliche.
3: Francine has always made sense of life through music. A few years after the tragedy, She started to write songs about her memories. She wrote about Ben and her life in the wake of his death.
0: And the first song I wrote was You Will Forget Him.
2: You won't think of him when seasons change Or when the school bus drives by It won't be in you cuz that's how you survive.
0: And I wrote the song because people don't have to live with the kind of significant loss of Ben that I do cuz I gave birth to him. Like I'll say people I have three boys. I had two boys that are living that and here's what they're like. And I had this other boy who died when he was 6. And this is what he was like. And some people are like, oh no, please don't tell me that. I don't want to know that's too much. And I say, no, you must. You must listen. Because he deserves that. Because his life matters too.
3: One of Francine's most cherished memories of Ben is from the morning that he died. She and Ben had just dropped off Nate at a book club that met before school. They had about 45 minutes before Ben needed to get dropped off too. So Francine took Ben to Starbucks to get a treat. They sat beside each other at a small square table, Francine with her coffee and Ben with a brownie.
0: And he just started to tell me about what he wanted to be when he grew up. And it wasn't a lighthouse keeper anymore. It was he wanted to be an architect. And then he said, but I want to be a paleontologist too because Nate wants to be a paleontologist. And then he told me that he loved Nate and that he would always be with Nate. And then he told me that he loved me and I just kind of I remember saying to him you know it's so nice just to be here the two of us we never get a chance to do that and because of that moment because I had that moment I get to keep that even though he's gone I get that forever for as long as I'm breathing and that to me is our goodbye I never got to say goodbye to him but that was our goodbye
2: It's lonely over here With every second changing color And no hope appears To save you from one another It's easy to forget It's easy to move on Hard to remember what should have been You'll look beyond him You will forget him It's bound to be
1: That story was reported by Claire Boyle. Bye. Francine Wheeler wrote eight more songs after You Will Forget Him. Over the past nine years, she transformed those songs into a play with music called Just Five Minutes.
0: And it really is a story about my grief, trauma, and how I've survived Ben's murder.
1: Francine is currently working with a team of artists and producers to film Just Five Minutes, and it will come out in 2023.
2: But I can stop it with every story, and you will know him. I'll demand it.
1: Coming up, the pandemic threw so many people into sudden, unexpected grief. We'll hear what researchers have learned about the impact.
4: It changes the way we think about the world, the way we think about ourselves. We seek to relearn the world and relearn ourselves. That's next on The Pulse.
1: This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about grief. The world so far has lost more than 6 million people to COVID-19. That means millions of people are dealing with a devastating loss. And for so many of them, the holiday season right now is just not the same. Like Joanne Robinson. Her mother, Ida Robinson, died during the early part of the pandemic. And Joanne is trying to hold onto the memories of happier times.
2: The 1st of November,
1: my mother would go shopping for straight through to New Year's. You know, she would even go down south and get her black walnuts. Um, she gathered rum so she can do her fruitcakes because they would have to soak for eight weeks. You know, just little things like that. Joanne often listens to voicemails that her mother left her before she got sick. Talk
5: to you later. This is Anna Robinson. Okay. Bye-bye.
6: Oh,
1: wondering how y'all was doing Joanne didn't get to say a final goodbye to her mother in the hospital at the last few moments um, she was taken off for everything and just was laying in a bed with just her face showing and you know she was sedated The pandemic separated a lot of people from their loved ones during those final moments. And researchers have learned that how a loved one died and how we get to say goodbye or not has a major impact on grief. Liz Tung has this story on what the pandemic taught us about
4: grief.
6: Bob Niemeyer's long journey with grief started when he was just a kid.
4: When I was 12 years old, not quite 12, about 10 days short of my birthday, my dad died by suicide.
6: It was something his mother never really recovered from. And as he got older, Bob wanted to try and understand grief. He became a clinical psychologist, professor, and researcher. And he spent the last 40-plus years studying grief and the therapy techniques that can help treat it. So when the pandemic hit, Bob knew we were heading into a storm with a very long tail.
4: We recognized this is going to be a a tidal wave, that we really have what uh, I came to call a shadow pandemic of grief.
6: Bob and psychologist Sherman Lee developed what they called the Pandemic Grief Scale to identify cases of dysfunctional grief associated with deaths that took place during COVID-19. Dysfunctional meaning it impairs someone's ability to work, take care of children, maintain relationships, live their lives. Bob gave a rundown of some of the symptoms.
4: Wishing that they were dead so they could be with their loved one again. Finding it impossible to care about much of anything because of this loss. Uh, Finding any positive and consoling memories of the loved one to be completely inaccessible because it was so overshadowed by the the trauma of the loss, increased risk of suicide, of substance abuse and dependency.
6: Bob and his co-author surveyed more than 800 Americans who lost loved ones during the pandemic, whether from COVID or some other cause. And what they found was that two thirds of respondents were suffering from dysfunctional grief, what they called pandemic grief, which led to their next question.
4: What makes these COVID losses so difficult
6: to find out, they looked at the context of the deaths that led to the most extreme symptoms. And they found that a lot of those factors were related to one thing, being separated from their loved one, losing their chance to say goodbye.
4: Not being able to be there with the loved one at the end of their life. Feeling a kind of emotional distance from them when the only medium of contact was a, an iPad or a tablet anger at the physicians and medical staff for not keeping uh, the family engaged with the patient's condition and care during a time when, of course, the medical world was overwhelmed by uh, the number of people being admitted to hospitals.
6: They missed the chance not only to say goodbye, but to care for and help usher their loved ones into death. To sit by their bedside holding their hand. To leaf through photo albums and talk about old memories to brush their hair or paint their nails or give them a final shave. Even with chaplains and nurses who volunteered to help families say goodbye over iPhones or tablets, it just wasn't the same.
4: These intimate moments of bonding and expression sometimes of gratitude, of love, but also sometimes expression of forgiveness or the asking of forgiveness, have a a deep meaning and purpose for people. And when they are denied those opportunities, what we find is that complications do arise. And this is very clear in our research on death in the pandemic era.
6: The forced separation, the distance, it affected grief even with people whose loved ones didn't die from COVID.
4: And what we found was that the cause of death didn't matter. It was the complications and the circumstances of dying that predicted the outcomes.
6: It's almost as if pandemic grief was a whole new genre of grief. See, typically with so-called natural deaths, deaths resulting from age or illness, grief is less complicated, if no less painful. And technically, dying of COVID is categorized as a natural death. But the grief Bob was seeing looked more like something else, grief resulting from sudden violent deaths. It shared a lot of the same characteristics.
4: First of all, a sense of shock and horror. Many of the symptoms that they struggled with like these images of their loved ones struggling for life on some machine in isolation, then there's the the comparable sense of sort of helplessness in the same way that we're kind of astonished by it. There's nothing we can do. And the same occurs in the context of violent death bereavement.
6: There's also anger, limitations in social support, unanswerable why questions, feelings of guilt, and more. Other researchers have also documented the traumatizing effects of COVID losses. One Chinese study found prolonged grief in nearly 40% of bereaved people, more than triple the usual rate. So how do we help people who are going through this? There isn't yet a guide for dealing with pandemic grief, but there is guidance on dealing with grief resulting from sudden or violent death. For example, a book by psychotherapist Kathleen O'Hara called A Grief Like No Other.
5: Certainly any death is tragic, but when you don't get to say goodbye. You don't get to uh, say anything. It leaves you completely on the other side of the grief because there's no preparation.
6: Kathleen has firsthand experience with sudden violent death. 23 years ago, her college-age son, Aaron, was kidnapped and shot to death. She told me about the moment she got the news.
5: And I remember holding the phone and, you know, that when people say they're blood runs cold. That's what it felt like. Like I and I was swirling into disbelief. like this cannot be happening. So there's a shock quality to it. When something shocking happens, we have a whole system physiologically and mentally and emotionally, that protects us from the the
6: thing itself. Kathleen says shock is partly a defense mechanism something that helps us stay standing at a moment when our sense of reality has crumbled. It's knowing something terrible is true and yet not fully believing it at the same time.
5: I knew it in my heart. I just knew that that he died. I remember being in the funeral home and, and of course, I never got to see him. So the casket was there and I remember thinking, well, maybe he's not in there. I mean, these crazy things that you think in grief, your mind is not exactly functioning.
6: A lot of that shock and trauma comes not only from the sudden, unexpected nature of violent deaths, but the fact that loved ones don't get a chance to say goodbye.
5: You know, there's something in all of our human rituals that help us and we hope the other person. Because imagine... The other person dying, we don't know what they were feeling at the last moments. We can't ask them, we can't see it. This is all unsettled and unfinished. So there is no closure other than the death itself. And we are left to try to figure that out somehow. There's something about the disbelief because your reality changes in the moment of that realization. So how can the mind accommodate that?
6: Bob Niemeyer says accommodating that new reality is what grief is. It's not just a feeling of sadness and loss. It's a process of reckoning with and rebuilding our shattered reality.
4: The question is, how do we live with it? Do we hold the grief or does the grief hold us? Do we find meaning in the life that we have? Can we experience moments of joy and gratitude, or are we just simply swallowed up in bitterness and darkness and refusal of the the tragic beauty of this world?
6: Five years after her son died, Kathleen started writing her book. In it, she includes the lessons she learned from her own grieving process and that of her clients. She talks about grief as an ocean, one that can drown you if you don't find a way to survive. And dealing with it as a process of getting back to shore. One of the first things you have to do, she says, is learn how to float. Find the qualities within yourself that can help you manage your grief, like courage, hope, faith, spirituality, and optimism.
5: You know, I call them uh, life preservers because you were, stand, we're in the ocean of grief and we're going to drown. And we need to find things within ourselves. And these are all human qualities that can help us not only survive, but
6: ultimately live again. Next, Kathleen says you have to find your lighthouses in the harbor, family and friends who can give you guidance and support. Once you're not actively drowning, one of the hardest parts begins, learning how to ride the waves of grief. Overwhelming feelings of sadness, anger, and hopelessness. Once you learn to ride those waves of grief, Kathleen says, you get carried out to the middle of that
5: ocean of grief. So I call that out in the deep, right? And one of the things we, that will help us get from the deep back to shore. And those are things like gratitude and forgiveness and, and, you know, how we're going to come to terms with this grief and the depth of the feelings and the experience.
6: Finding your way out of that ocean involves transmuting your despair into something productive, taking ownership of your story and the grief within it and turning it into something creative. Art, writing, music, a foundation, something that honors the one you lost. Eventually, Kathleen says, you'll be able to come out of the ocean and swim to shore, or she calls it the new world, where you once again start thinking about the future.
5: How we're going to live again. How we're going to face this new world without the ones we love.
6: I asked Kathleen what helped her the most in the first five years after her son's death. She said one big thing was facing her feelings.
5: I think because I was a therapist and I was already familiar with several people close to me dying is that I knew how to deal with feelings. I was completely unprepared, by the way, for the depth of those feelings. But I knew that if you can feel them and deal with them, you will heal from them. But it's the running away from them that causes the problems because we're so scared of the feelings because they're so overwhelming.
6: She says some of those feelings never go away. And the goal isn't to make them go away. It's to transform how you live with your grief. And importantly, for people who lose loved ones in sudden and traumatic ways, that means getting over the initial shock and horror. So
5: for example, this happened 23 years ago. I don't think of the event that the circumstances of his death, thankfully I've worked through that. What hasn't changed is the missing him. You know, he'd be 44 now, you know, what would he be like? So it's more of the pure just longing or missing for the person, but that will stay. It doesn't have to immobilize you, But it certainly becomes that. And I think in terms of grief, that's a good outcome. That's a good outcome. I think that person stays in your heart, and you have a different kind of relationship with them. And there's always a place in your heart for them.
6: Bob Niemeyer agrees with Kathleen.
4: I think maybe the goal is not so much to say goodbye, but in the words of a famous social worker, Michael White, to say hello again? How do we continue the conversation? How do we not so much seek to finish business, but to continue it with the the loved one, but in a healthy way?
6: Bob offered some of his own suggestions. Rituals, like setting a place at the table for your deceased loved one, writing them letters, and maybe even answering them, taking long walks and having talks with them in your head.
4: And when we find ways of somehow taking in and making a place for this sad uh, sometimes tragic event that happened becomes part of our life story, it becomes a tellable tale, we move beyond our own isolation in the loss it's never too late to memorialize our loved ones just because we missed the obvious opportunity doesn't mean we can't invent another
5: write that letter take that walk in nature and talk to that person and say goodbye, you can do that. It's obviously not what we want, but we also have to realize we have to work with what we have.
1: That story was reported by Liz Tong. For many young people, the pandemic brought their first brush with death. Loss of a loved one, maybe even a parent. Student reporter Jacob Smolin looked into the experience of grief and how young people deal with it from a personal experience. He lost his grandmother at the end of 2020.
7: My grandmother, Mindy Smolin, had lived a long, full life. And although her death itself was sudden, It wasn't entirely shocking. But, I mean, having anyone you love pass away is hard. I thought about her often at night or during the school day, and I tried to remember conversations we had. My grandma and I used to spend a lot of time talking about art. She was really into art, so the topic came naturally for her, not so much for me. She loved to travel, and she loved France, the language, the culture, the food. I also found myself searching for things that she had given to me to remember her by. My grandmother loved rabbits, and she sometimes gave little rabbit sculptures as gifts to family members.
1: Open it up. What's in here?
6: mine. It is yours. Absolutely.
7: I didn't have one. Then I found out my sister had a handwritten letter from my grandma. A handwritten letter. I felt jealous. Before I lost my grandmother, the topic of death or grief really didn't come up much. It seems like many people avoid it, if possible. But there is a push to make death and grief more of a normal dinner table conversation topic. I found out about death cafes, where people meet to talk about dying over food and drinks. And I talked to Brian Long, a death cafe facilitator from Lancaster County in Pennsylvania.
6: It's a little bit like the the opening and the closing of the, uh, the Tom Hanks movie.
7: um, You're talking about Forrest Gump?
6: I am talking about
3: Forrest Gump. Those must be comfortable shoes.
6: When he sits on a park bench and
4: strikes up a conversation with somebody next to him, doesn't know who that person is. That person doesn't know who he is, but they share things. I wish I had shoes like that.
2: My feet hurt.
4: Mom always said There's an awful lot you can
2: tell about a person by their shoes.
7: Brian says it's about the comfort people find in talking to strangers about things that they have trouble talking to their closest relatives about. I also talked to Jim Kirkpatrick, a death cafe facilitator in Northern California. He told me that the conversations often give him more of an appreciation of his life and the people in it.
8: Often, I'm reminded when I leave a cafe, who do I love and who do I reach out to? We had a memorial
7: for my grandmother this summer, on the weekend of what would have been her 89th birthday. We gathered under a white tent in my aunt's backyard in Cape Cod, where my grandmother lived for 25 years, with family and friends alike, and we ate chocolate mousse and listened to French music in order to celebrate the life she had lived. Au revoir, Paris I wish that I could say I had some sort of grand epiphany following this exploration of death and grief. But the truth is, I didn't. I certainly understand more about how grieving functions on a psychological level. I've learned that grief is an extremely subjective and personal experience. I've learned that I love to hear stories about my grandma. And sometimes I wish she were here to tell those stories. But I'll carry on the things she's given me like a love of cooking and languages.
1: That story was reported by Jacob Smolin last year. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up... The passage of time and how it affects the experience of grief.
8: I remember everything. I remember his voice. I remember every detail, like how he will brush his hair with his hand. I, I remember everything. It's crazy.
1: That's next on the pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about grief today. How long should crushing deep grief last? Prolonged grief disorder is now an official diagnosis. The American Psychiatric Association added it to the diagnostic handbook. It's described as grief that remains intense for more than a year after losing a loved one, and a grief that affects people's ability to live their lives. But What do we actually know about the duration of the deepest grief for most people? Scientist and writer Hilda Bastian was faced with that question when she lost her son Adam last year. His death was very unexpected. He was 38 and died from a sudden illness. Hilda felt like her sadness and despair were going to suffocate her, and she couldn't imagine a way forward. She remembered other mothers she had known who had lost a child, who had never recovered.
9: And so I was absolutely terrified that I was going to be one of those people because I just could not imagine that distress easing. And I couldn't imagine it ever getting better, but I also couldn't imagine living like this.
1: She wanted to know, was there hope that she would ever feel joy again? That she would one day have some semblance of a life? So even as distressed as she was, not sleeping, barely able to function, she put on her researcher hat and started to dig through the science on grief.
9: And in fact, it was Almost the only thing, there was only a couple of things that felt normal. Laughing when I saw my grandchildren doing something silly, being happy to see my other son, those things were normal. Um, The only other thing that was normal was the research thing, the being interested in it. And when I would read things about grief, I would go, but how do you know that? Is that true? Isn't that true? Those sorts of things.
1: A lot of the information she dug up was conflicting and not very helpful.
9: This is particularly bad. People kind of swarm into that space of trying to help people and it really kind of clutters up the landscape. Hilda was especially
1: interested in research on the duration of the worst grief, how long it would last. What were some of the better studies you found when it comes to grief and and the duration of it?
9: The really helpful thing for me was a small number of studies where people had tried to map what happened to people across an entire population, people in the in the VA health system, for example, who's who had lost a spouse in the military, they could track uh, their levels of depression and what drugs they had used and so on from. A year or two before, they lost the person to a few years after.
1: Hilda reviewed the studies and saw that for a lot of people, the grief seemed to ease about three months after the loss. And by six months, most people were over the worst of it, doing better or even okay.
9: When I was still in the middle of the worst of it, I found that hard to believe because well, the rest of the internet was telling me things like you'll never really entirely feel better and, um, and maybe in a year you might start to feel better. Things like that are really quite common in grief information on the internet, so I was quite confused about it. And uh, uh, later when I had the chance to really look at the literature, I could see no, a lot of that grief internet is, is just wrong.
1: But even though she found it hard to believe that she would feel better in six months, Hilda says these studies gave her that ray of hope she had been looking for.
9: I needed something uh, realistic, you know, as I, I kind of looked more at the research, I could see I was at quite high risk. I'm older, I live alone, you know, it was my child. I knew that I was at quite high risk of being one of the people who really struggled for a very long time. But... Even knowing that, I mean, knowing that there was still a substantial proportion of people in my situation who are happy again, um, still grieving, of course. I mean, you'll miss your child forever, but living an, a reasonable life again, uh, that was enough hope for me because it wasn't as though I only had like one chance in a hundred of being okay. It was substantial. So I clung to that and go, no, it could be better. It's going to get better. That's
1: scientist Hilda Bastian, who is compiling information about grief research in the wake of her son's sudden death. Grief changes over time, but it doesn't seem like it changes in a linear way. A couple of years ago, we talked to several different people about their experiences of grief and how it morphed as the months and years went by.
8: I remember everything. I remember his voice.
1: Sol de Harris lost her older brother, Rafa, 10 years ago in a motorcycle accident.
8: I remember every detail, like how he will brush his hair with his hand. I I remember everything. It's crazy.
10: You know, it sometimes, I've had people say to me, it feels like a hundred years since my husband died, and it feels like 10 minutes since my husband died. That's grief expert Claire Drexler. It's not a stage, you know, grief's not like the flu, that it's really bad at first, and slowly, slowly, slowly it gets better. In that period, it does get better, but in that period, there's the, the in and out, the lean in, the lean out. So grief changes over time, but also your
1: experience of time is changed by the grief. Time is, is,
7: is everything or nothing, right? It's like you can remember everything, you know, up to the minute of something, but then you can remember nothing at
1: all. Or you choose not to, you know, want to remember anything at all. That's Jared Michael Lowe. He's a writer in Philadelphia. Eight years ago, Jared's mother passed away in their family home while he was in the other room. With me, it feels like it's yesterday, but also it feels like it's many years ago. Like, I feel like I've overcome so much, but it's still, like, the feeling is still there. It's funny because it's not the actual
7: day that she passed, but it's the day of her birthday that really hits me hard. And so this year I literally sat and meditated for
1: I don't know how long. All around you life moves on. Seasons
10: pass. Holidays important dates come and go. These anniversaries, death dates birth dates, holidays kinds of things do actually mark the passage of time because what people tell us in their grieving process that time gets sort of distorted for them. For
1: Sol, those are the times when her brother's death feels intensely new. For
8: me, Christmas is the worst. Because, you know, it's not like something that you do every day. It's just once a year. After what happened with my brother, it's pretty hard for everyone. Having dinner with my whole family, that we get together like 30 people, and he is not there.
10: Claire says this feeling is common. When the holidays come, when birthdays come, when anniversaries come— it is a recognition that the calendar has changed and things have gone on. So, do return to return
1: to the idea of time. Mm-hmm. The old saying is, "Time heals all
10: wounds." Mm-hmm. Is that a helpful saying or not in your world? Well, I I understand the saying. I understand that it where it comes from, but I think when we really look at it, and that's what some of the research around grief and bereavement has been centered on, is What are you doing in that time? Some people don't even give themselves credit for for what they're actually doing. It feels like they're swimming, but they're actually processing. They're actually working. They're accommodating the loss. They're trying to figure out what it is. It's all in relation to your life. People don't get gold stars if they're feeling better at six months rather than 18 months.
1: Claire Drexler is a grief therapist at the Center for Loss and Bereavement in Skipak, Pennsylvania. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, Jet Lehman, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
10: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com.
7: This message comes from NPR sponsor, MassMutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.